There is a battle, if you haven't noticed, for the minds and hearts of men. And that battle, though it might have physical aspects to it, it is primarily a spiritual battle. That being the case, we must not still be within the original setting that God the Creator established. For you'll remember with me that when God created, He brought man into a place of perfect fellowship with Him, within which there was no contention originally with God's Word and with God's description of the universe. Adam and Eve saw their Maker for just who He is, their Creator. We must not be in that setting, brothers and sisters. Likewise, we must not be in the full manifestation of the glory of God as it is promised to be displayed in His coming kingdom. Because according to the seraphim, as we've seen in a previous teaching in this same series, which we are entitling The King of Glory, we recall that Isaiah was caught up out of the setting in which we find ourselves, up into the place of God's glory that was not disturbed by sin, and there the cherubim declare what is palpable to them, and in that they are so affected by the holiness and the glory of God, they declare what is truer than the current confusion that we and many generations of other humans have lived their lives through, they declare that the whole earth is full or filled with God's glory. Now that for us, creatures of time as we are, that for us is a promise that we can embrace that looks to the coming kingdom. And in the coming kingdom, the Lord Jesus will be exalted. Ultimately, the eternal state will come into effect. The whole earth will be filled with God's glory, and the battle will be over. The Lord, strong and mighty, will have broken through every gate, will have opened every door, some of which He's knocked upon, and the hearts have opened. Others of which that have resisted him, he will nonetheless triumph over. The very gates of hell will not be able to keep the king of glory from his promised return. And as I've stated, there will be no more battle for the minds and hearts of men. In that we are not in the creation state, the original perfect arrangement and nor are we in the kingdom state, then if you read Psalm 24 with understanding, the psalm that these teachings are based from, you are only left with one alternative, for there are only three main aspects of the sweeping story that is God's redemptive history presented in that psalm. The first two verses speak of the creation account. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all that dwell therein. 
We could continue to read verse 2, but we've done so in previous teachings, and we will be engaging with this text throughout the course of this series. But I'm reminding you of the fact that those two verses present to us the biblical theological vision of creation. When in the beginning of all of this, God created, and when he rested, it was very good. If we move our attention to the final section of Psalm 24, verses 7 through 10, there we read this dramatic language in beautiful poetic style. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Be lifted up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. As glorious and wonderful as that language is, it nonetheless entails a certain irony, a certain mystery to it that is mournful except when it is finally broken through and the king enters through the gates and through the doors. I'm referring to the fact that the king of glory has to come in to his own creation, that there are gates and there are doors that are resisting in some measure the king of glory's complete enthronement in the universe that he created. But nonetheless, as I'm pointing out to you, verses 7 through 10 describe to us the kingdom state. And there God and his glory is fully restored and fully manifested. But I remind you of what we discover in the middle section, verses 3 through 6. In this middle section... We are acquainted with the reality that access to God is now restricted as a consequence of the entrance of sin. Though the universe belongs to God, though ultimately God will once again manifest His glory through every square inch of the universe, nonetheless, in the middle period in which we presently live, we find a very odd thing. We find that the God of the universe is at a great distance in terms of easily accessible personal individual fellowship. For the question is asked, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? And then... We are presented with conditions. Only they who have clean hands and a pure heart, only they who have not or are not in the practice of lifting up their soul onto vanity or idols, those who have watched over their tongues, they do not swear deceitfully or otherwise grieve the Holy Spirit in their speech. Verse 5 relates this, He shall receive the blessing from the Lord. That's cause for rejoicing, but it's also cause for reflection. Because when it's stated that he shall receive the blessing from the Lord, it is understood that others are excluded. That the experience of God's blessing, the ordering of your life, the removal of the chaos of sin, is not available under any 
arrangement that mankind can come up with, with all of their philosophies, with all of their psychologies, with all of their self-help programs. No, it has to come from God himself. He alone can give us righteousness from God, as the remainder of the verse states. He alone can restore us back to the original design. He alone, brothers and sisters, is the God of salvation. And so I say to all of you who are gathered in this meeting today, this would be true of any church of Jesus Christ, however big or small, that is gathered truthfully in the name of Jesus today. I say to you that though it is the case that there is a battle underway for the minds and hearts of men, you nonetheless, by the grace of God, have the privilege of being in the temple arrangement within which the mighty King of Kings will exercise the sword of the Spirit, will exercise the power of truth, will cast down the language and the imaginations of the voices that are at war with Almighty God, such that His gospel can have a powerful effect in your hearts. I hope you realize that that's possible today. I hope you realize that there might be chaos outside these walls. You might have driven to this meeting with some degree of chaos around you or in your heart. We're all works in progress, brothers and sisters. But what I'm saying to you is in the middle section in which redemption is taking place, restricted, defined locations have been ordained by God. In this case, I'll speak of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, the classic expression was the Solomonic Temple and the very Holy of Holies, where God himself could be met, where his word was safely kept, and where the Shekinah glory could meet with your life and give you the sense of God's holiness, and therefore you could recognize that I must get my life right if I am going to stay in the presence of this one. And so it is the case, brothers and sisters, as I'm saying to you, finding ourselves within these defined locations, such as is a church of Jesus Christ, we won't describe what a church of Jesus Christ must look like at the moment. We won't digress into a study on ecclesiology. But wherever there is a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ, there His presence is promised. There His Word is preached. There the King of glory enters in. He doesn't have to bust through the gates. It is a restricted manifestation of the King of glory's work. For it is not yet through the entire universe, but we experience a proleptic conversation and act of Almighty God within which His Word and His Spirit seeks to oppose the words and language of those that come against His gospel. Paul speaks of the God of this world. He seeks to blind the minds of men lest the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God, should shine upon them and they should believe the gospel. I've already expressed to you the language of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. He says the ministry's calling is to cast down 
arguments and reasonings and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. I've expressed to you out of 1 Timothy chapter 6 that there is such a thing as a science, a rational presentation, a form of persuasive speech that is falsely so-called, but may nonetheless be rather effective, though sinister in its intent. Now, what I just presented to you out of Psalm 24 is this beautiful trinity of texts within this psalm, the creation account, the temple account, and the kingdom account. We've spoken about this in the previous messages. But there is a beautiful power to the way in which this gospel message is linked together. It is something like a threefold cord that if it is woven together properly, it will not break. It'll sustain your life. It'll help you through the experiences that you will have in this distorted time. But it will also set your vision toward the coming King of glory and encourage you to not be distracted by the God of this world who would blind your mind from what the gospel is actually all about. But dear friends, as I've stated already, particularly in last Sunday's teaching, you have to supply the links between these grand sections in order for this to work as powerfully as God intends it to work in your heart. In other words, what we're saying is if any strand of this threefold cord of beautiful biblical theology of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of the redemptive plan that is presented in Psalm 24, if any one of these three strands, if any one of these links is broken, if the strands are frayed and snap, then the entire gospel falls apart. And how would that occur? That's what our study this afternoon is going to focus upon. We're going to continue to investigate the idea of the categorical declaration, which is what we are given in the first two verses of Psalm 24. It is a categorical declaration. Open your Bibles. If you must, put your blinders on either side of your eyes. Block your ears. Read the text. And it says, the earth is the Lord's. And all of it is the Lord's. How strong is that link in your heart? How strong is that link in connection with where we are today in the temple period, in the chaotic period? How strong is that link as well connected to the final section of Psalm 24, the kingdom account, such that you are so fully alive to the creation account and so absolutely certain and vividly conscious of this universe being God's creation. And that is the only way you envision Everything that ever enters into your eyes, that ever is touched by your hands, is ever heard by your ears, 
is ever witnessed by all of your senses. You are so vividly alive to that, that the expectation of the king is just the natural outcome of knowing that all of this is his. And your submission to him as he seeks to put you back together is able to go on apace because you're not distracted by the many antichrists that arise to tell you a different story. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we want to investigate the categorical declaration versus the categorical denial. The categorical declaration versus the rise of many antichrists versus the development of satanic science. Now, when we think about Isaiah 6 and its comparison with Psalm 24, when we see in Isaiah 6 the gospel itself preached by the seraphim and the cherubim, that God is holy, the whole earth is full of his glory, there is your eschatological fulfillment already being endlessly declared by them because in the space in which they live, God's glory is so there, so felt, so undeniably real, there's not a stitch of doubt in their being that the earth will be filled with God's glory. They say it as an event that has already occurred. But we remember that in Isaiah chapter 6, God's presence and holiness and the experience that Isaiah is having in the heavenly environs is contrasted with Uzziah, a king, a human being who has some measure of power and presence. He has some degree of charismatic, convincing personality. The bottom line being... The contrast is with this one named Uzziah, who had the audacity to take up a place within God's holy temple and to challenge the sacred space and the way in which God declared how that sacred space should operate. He entered in with his own ideas, with his own wisdom, with his own plan. He attempted to carry that out. Well, thanks be to God, that holy space in Uzziah's day had a man by the name of Azariah who was overseeing that location, and he had 80 other sympathetic attendants with him, and they identified on the person of Uzziah because of what God had done. I know it manifested physically, but this can also work spiritually. They identified that he was ridden with leprosy that he was unclean, that his ideas were sick and contagious, and they would defile the entire space. And so the project of the temple period within which lives are, are to be sorted out and brought into increased fellowship with God would have been completely ruined if Uzziah was allowed to stay there. But Azariah, a minister of the word of God, a keeper of the holy space, he ejected Uzziah out from the temple precincts. I remind you of all of these things again, dear brothers and sisters, because I am wanting to enforce in your spirits an understanding that unless the categorical declaration is protected and kept completely sacred and clear, if the link 
of the creation account is made rubbery or otherwise broken or rusted, then the entire gospel falls apart. The entire undertaking of God's spirit to restore your life loses its power and force. And this is the work of antichrists. Antichrists are those who come into God's space and try to take over and take the place of God. Here's their method. They raise a primary level uncertainty. They raise or otherwise entertain a primary level uncertainty. I'll give you the classic expression of this. The first time it entered into human experience, I will tell you who the first Antichrist was. It was Adam in God's holy space, the God-appointed vice-regent who was tasked with protecting paradise. But under the influence of Lucifer, who is very wise in a wily sort of way, there is no doubt a fundamental foolishness to Lucifer's arrogance. That's a case we could make, but let us understand Lucifer is very wise in a wily sort of way. He has perfected an art form. We might call it loosely propaganda. You could call it science falsely so-called. But it is the beginning of a warfare that is going on for the minds and hearts of men. And it began in the garden. And what does this art form look like, this sinister art form? I said it is the introduction of a primary level uncertainty. If you would like a visual image of the idea, it is as if you go to the foundation of things and you paint the graffiti of a big, huge question mark on the foundation of everything. And you say, hath God said? Is this thing that God has said, is it absolutely true? If the heart of man can be attacked at a primary fundamental level, then links, important connections of truths begin to break down in the divine story that is a system of beautiful harmony. And as a result, we lose a feel for the power of God's word. We lose a sense of the awesomeness of God. We cease to live in the fear of God. Our minds are darkened. Our brains become reprobate. Our morality begins to fall. And we become accustomed to the chaotic period to the extent that we don't even look for or even believe in the coming kingdom. Hath God said, we want to think about the graffiti of that question mark as Satan would seek to paint it on the first two verses of Psalm 24, declaring that God is the Creator. You see, my dear brothers and sisters, the question that is before us is the following. If, as is the case, Psalm 24 presents these three beautiful links, these three strands, that if you take creation, God is the creator, and you weave that after sin, you provide 
that elliptical event that's missing in the story after verse 2 in Psalm 24, but you know is there, that copula occurrence, that thing that puts all of this story together. You weave the fact of God the Creator with the idea of God the Consecrator, God the One who condescended to enter into human history and to bring redemption out of chaos, and you weave that together, and so you're asking, can I come to church today? Can I open my Bible today and read something to help order my life, to find God through the text? Can I come before the throne of grace to find mercy and grace to help in time of need today? Is that possible? So you're in the period of God, the consecrator, God, the one who is on a personal level and in various churches, he is seeking to show himself alive and powerful and that he is the king of saints. And then you weave those two strands or you connect those two links with the final section of Psalm 24 where now in your heart you look with real anticipation and with real fortitude and endurance through all that you go through in the consecration period because you know the day is coming when you will lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up, ye everlasting doors, because the King of glory is going to enter into human history in a visual way for all believers. Hallelujah. That's the gospel. That's what keeps you going. That's the power of the gospel unto salvation. That's what should grip the hearts of any human who is presently in this battle within which alternate messages are flying at such rapid rates. But it should be obvious as I'm getting to, it should be obvious that if the first link of this story is undermined by the rational weapons of satanic science. If the creation account is undermined, then the entire gospel story falls apart. So I want to present to you some of the actions and the words, the ideas of the antichrists that have arisen over time, who have intruded themselves into the sacred space of the Holy of Holies, where there are mysteries, in this case, the mystery of origins, the mystery of where does this all come from, who made all of this, and what is it all about. I want to present to you the actions, the voices, the documents, the writings, the philosophies, the reasonings of the Uzziahs, the many antichrists who barge right into the holy space of God, wherein there is already a book written with the finger of God, written by the Spirit of God, that already declares origin. It says, in the beginning, Yahweh created. But nonetheless, over time, I'm saying to you, dear brothers and sisters, in the temple period, you hearing what I'm saying? In the period when the synagogues were gathering, in the period when churches are gathering, in the period where you, as a temple of the Holy Spirit, may still see and read and hear things. In that period, there is a battle going on, brothers and sisters. I juxtapose it over against the period given to us in the 7th through 10th verses. There'll be no antichrist personages opposing the King of glory during the millennium, during the eternal state. That's not insignificant, dear brothers and sisters. 
I am here as a preacher representing Jesus. I am here as I reflect upon every heart that is gathered before me and any ear that would hear this message. I am here to ensure fundamentally that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ has a full effect in your heart. So I have to speak to you about they who have intruded into this sacred space in terms of the charge of this sacred space. It's been granted to God's ministry. God's ministry are they who have been anointed to watch over the sacred space of the mysteries of origins and human understanding through the preaching of God's Word. I must say parenthetically, Though I could robustly defend that, I believe, from an epistemological perspective and present to you something that would be perhaps captured under the idea of presuppositional apologetics, I won't do that at the moment. I have as my task today to mark out those that cause divisions, contrary to the doctrine of God's Word, so that each heart can realize that there's a battle for your heart right at the point of creation. So let's talk about the modern myth movement. The modern myth movement. I have a number of things to read to you today. You don't have to write them all down, but we'll move through this material as thoroughly as we're able to this afternoon, and if necessary, we'll pick up our topic in a subsequent study. Originally here, I'm going to give you a few quotations that are a sampling out of an unfortunate plethora of documents and books and writings that would equally tell the same story. But I'm going to begin by presenting to you religious professors who perhaps had some sort of password for how they could get into or at least the holy place, and however they got through the veil, I mean, God is gracious, He parted the veil, so I guess they just pranced through. They get some degree from some university, and then they feel entitled to write their volumes, and they enter right into the holy place, and they challenge verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 24. Take, for example, these remarks from the professor of religion at DePauw University in Indiana. Written in 2013, Bernard Bato, in a book entitled In the Beginning, Essays on Creation Motifs in the Ancient Near East and the Bible. This professor of religion writes, The propensity of Jewish theologians to resort to myth-making is perhaps nowhere more manifest than in the classic creation account in Genesis. He goes on to say, Jewish conceptions of creation found in the Hebrew Bible are part and parcel of the general ancient Near Eastern pattern. Many themes derived from extra-biblical myth, occur in the Hebrew Bible. He's stating there, if you're not catching it, that indeed, not just in Genesis, but in Isaiah and elsewhere, scattered throughout the Bible, are remnants of ancient Near Eastern myths. 
He goes on to say, but the classic biblical account of creation found in the opening chapters of Genesis is so similar in places to the Mesopotamian stories of Gilgamesh, Atrahasis, and Enuma Elish, among others, that even direct borrowing cannot be excluded. In any case, the Israelites know less than their ancient Near Eastern neighbors engaged in speculative myth-making to express their belief that the patron deity Yahweh was the divine sovereign and creator of the world. I should not perhaps pronounce myself as being Azariah. I will leave that for God to determine. But I will ask of you, are you among the 80 members that are accompanying accompanying any holy man of God who has the ability to discern an antichrist when he hears one? That has the ability to see the development of leprosy that is entering into the holy place and is highly contagious? When I read these statements, and you know that they come from a professor of religion, and he plainly states that the Hebrew Bible is just an iteration of ancient Near Eastern myths. I am entering into a battle that has been ongoing for generations, and I'm taking a sampling off of the battlefield of a particular skirmish that is happening through Bernard Bato's fighting. And my dear brother and sister, I hope, by the grace of God, beginning with this text that I have quoted to you and things that we will look at, I hope that you are feeling how this is attacking the gospel that will save your soul. And I'm saying to you that it is absolutely the case, particularly in this 21st century, it is absolutely the case that the undermining of the Genesis account is largely the weapon that Satan has used. Bernard Bato just painted the graffiti of a big question mark over Psalm 24. I know, dear brothers and sisters, if you were to pick up your own Bibles, if you were to engage in a deeper study of the first two verses of Psalm 24, or Genesis 1, for that matter, if you were to talk about this with men behind the pulpit, certainly teachers within seminaries, if you were to reflect on verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 24 that says, the earth is the Lord's, you would be being told, well, sure, that's fine. This is a, a form of trying to get at history and understand origins. It's relatively difficult, of course, to get this all sorted out, but we're here. Don't worry. The academics are here, writing their papers and doing their thinking, and the scientists are present. Not to worry. We'll explain to you that, as a matter of fact, there were many Near Eastern creation myths, like Gilgamesh, the Sumerian flood story, like Atraharsis, the Akkadian epic, of a great flood sent by the gods, like Enuma Elish, the Babylonian creation epic, and others. And so, 
What we have in Genesis and what the Hebrews were engaged in, what you have in the text called the Old Testament, is not the Word of God, is not a revelation coming from a holy place that you cannot access because you could not possibly know where all of this came from. But God reveals it to you. And that's what this special book called the Bible does. But dear brothers and sisters, these religious leaders and what is so very ripe in the air everywhere, and it's infected our young people, it's infected our society, it's infected our churches, it's infected everything around us. You are taught, and Satan has very wildly introduced these backdoor ideas that this that we have in our Bibles is just another gathering together of myths. Ronald Simpkins is interacting with these same considerations as was Bernard Frank Bato. I don't equate them in their ultimate perspectives. That's not my point. I'm primarily reading what individuals have written. These are not ad hominem attacks. I'm not slinging mud. I'm reading their ink. Creation in the Bible is described with metaphors and myths, similar in kind to those used in the Mesopotamian, Egyptian, and Canaanite cultures. God fights the sea dragon, battles the chaotic waters, separates the heavens from the earth, divides the primeval waters, acts through the spoken word, fashions people out of clay, gives birth to people, delivers humans out of the womb, plants a garden, and causes the earth to produce animal and plant life. Biblical scholars have long noted that the biblical descriptions of creation have numerous similarities with other ancient Near Eastern creation myths. And so they put forth their hands like Uzziah did in the holy place, though they have no warrant for being there and saying such things. But they barge through, and in some senses they close the door behind them, that in order for your heart to come into fellowship with God, you have to... Lift up your head, O ye gates, and be lifted up and open ye everlasting doors and let the King of glory come in, or you're never going to fellowship with this God. You'll come to church over and over again, but you'll never know the God with whom you have to do, that He is the creator of the universe. That's it. It does not occur to these religious authors. They are so in harmony with the more caustic antichrist spirits that are at work and have been at work for many generations. Remember, John said, many antichrists have arisen. Remember the description of antichrist classically. What does he do? He intrudes into the sacred space and attempts to take over. For those who are spiritual, they recognize he becomes leprous contagiously. And the only way you're going to be okay is if you thrust him out. As a matter of fact, it's your obligation to thrust him out. It is my happy duty to cast down these imaginations because it breaks the chain of the gospel story. It renders the coming prospect of God the King as just a fairy tale that may or may not happen. And he isn't even the great king.
king that controls everything now. He's just a participant in the universal cycle of things that may prevail in the end and show up to set up a kingdom. Who knows what that looks like? I'm talking about the lack of conviction that will occur in your heart unless every spot in your regenerate heart is cleansed from the leaven of unbelief. And you've got to clean that question mark off the foundation of the Word of God. It doesn't seem to occur to these scientists, these religious academics, that perhaps the creation account is the original. And the Near Eastern distorted, corrupted versions of it are the faint echoes of a truth that for one reason or another, perhaps because they were otherwise immoral and they knew God, but they were not thankful when they knew God and they turned God into an idol and into things that were made and they became reprobate in their minds such that their minds were darkened by the God of this world lest the light of the glorious gospel should shine upon them And they should realize that this nonsense about Tiamat and Marduk and whatever else is wholly insensible. Well, having brought up Tiamat, I'll remind you, I'll read to you a further statement from Bernard Bato from his book, Slaying the Dragon, Myth-Making in the Biblical Tradition. That slaying the dragon idea is drawn from the Enuma Elish within which Tiamat is slain by Marduk. I'm not going to digress into it. This quotation is being given because I want to show the subtlety with which these Antichrist voices operate. And this happens right in the church's context, right in the seminaries out of whom the ministers frequently come from. And then they teach these ideas in one form or another. I won't digress right now, but sometimes they'll be in the version of theistic evolution, something like that. But every version of this is separating you away from the palpable sense of who the God is that we come to meet with today. So we get what I will call designer creation myths. You know, the sort of boutique Bible myth stories, you know, where they make it nice and silver-tongued and and um, more intellectually acceptable and the rest of it. So here we go. Bernard Bato says, the Yaoists consciously drew together elements from both Atraharis and Gilgamesh and other mythic traditions for his new epic. The Yaoist You know, he's into the document hypothesis and so on. I won't digress into the Wellhausen and hypothesis. But um, what I am saying is, notice, did you hear it with me, Brother Stephen? Did you hear it with me, Sister Lois? Because it's subtle. Did you hear that he is not speaking about inspiration? This is a history of religion approach to the Bible. This is a naturalistic understanding of how religion came about. When this is in the air and in the churches and permeating Bible commentaries and in the culture and in the school systems and maybe even in the Christian school systems and people aren't quite sure whether or not evolution is true or some other version that is different than a six-day literal creation by the Word of God who made matter that is therefore not eternal. 
what I'm saying is he is arguing that sure, we have a beautiful story in the book of Genesis, but your Bible is not that much different than other cultural relics that we've discovered through archaeology when we've found Sumerian remnants of Ashurbanipal's library, for example, and we find the Enuma Elish as a part of the clay tablets, and, and your Bible is just maybe a cleaned up little bit better version than that? I suppose I should continue to read Bado's quotation. He says, as far as we know, these motifs were not previously put together in this fashion, in the way that the Yahwist did, in the way that the author or authors, as he would argue, of the Genesis account did. These myths were all around in the region, he is saying, but they weren't quite put together in the way in which we have it in the Hebrew text of Genesis 1. Granted that the Yahwist used earlier materials, but his was a new, deliberate creation designed to meet the needs of his Yahwist faith. As is entirely to be expected, the Yahwist shared a common culture with his ancient Near Eastern neighbors. There, there, little sheep of the flock, let this hireling tell you as he's teaching your soul. It's to be expected. I'm a academic and I've read about Gilgamesh and Atraharis and Enuma Elish and other myth stories and I just want to comfort your hearts. We know what modern science has helped us to see in terms of evolution and all so many wonderful scientific discoveries. But don't let that trouble your heart, dear believer. It is expected that the Jews would share some of the cultural world of their Near Eastern neighbors. But it is the uniqueness, Bado tells us, of his vision over against that of his neighbors that the biblical tradition affirms. So we're supposed to feel that somehow we have reason to worship God at least a little bit. Because the Jews do, after all, have a designed version, a better cleaned up version of the ancient myths. But how many people who are members of churches, even following everything I've said thus far, would still be, let's say, on the fence about whether the Genesis account is true as revelation of what happened, because that's what the sacred Holy of Holies is speaking out of the mystery of origins. The Word of God is speaking and saying, in the beginning, God created, and this is how He did it. He said, let there be light, and there was light. And the rest of the account is completed in six days. And so the psalmist can say, the earth is the Lord's. I would to God this was more filled, this room, because I would love to look at various individuals and say, do you know that the earth is the Lord's? Have you taken that into account? Well, we all know that there's a certain foreignness to many hearts about that claim. It sounds like a myth. And that's what we're addressing that very real battle. You see, scholars will sometimes decorate their idolatrous tree of knowledge. Have you ever heard of the tree of knowledge? 
the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, on which, in a sense, Lucifer in the form of a serpent, not at that time without dexterity, without hands, we would assume, because that was part of his curse. But my point for making that remark is, let's vision him as some lizard-type looking thing, just because that's not uncommon. And he's got a fingernail, and he etches into the tree of the knowledge of good and evil a big, fat question mark. That's all you have to do. This is just graffiti of the mind. This is taking away the beautiful of the original creation and just painting up through the rebel actions of chaotic hearts, visiting their confusion into your life by painting these big question marks. And what I'm saying is this idolatrous tree of knowledge is sometimes decorated with a bit of tinsel. You'll see with me what I mean. They'll they'll make their ideas about myth a little bit more pleasing to the eye of the average churchgoer, a little bit more festive, a little bit more, as it were, decorated for the glory of God, so they say. You remember the golden calf? These be thy gods, O Christians, you know, theistic evolution, for example. Let's let's decorate this tree of knowledge a little bit. We'll put some beautiful golden tinsel on. You can have your God and have evolution too. And sadly, in a similar way in which the average Christian will bow before the tree during Christmas in one form or another, Christians celebrate these halfway concessions as if they just received a wonderful intellectual present. Oh, thank you for letting God stay in the picture. Once again, a classic expression of that is theistic evolution, or what they call progressive creation. Oh, thank you for letting God stay in the, in the picture. Now I can be acceptable in some form or another to my educated neighbors, as well as still read my Bible and go to church with everybody else who only halfway believes in God. And none of us as a result, really feel the effect of the linked story of God's gospel that says, I'm the creator, the absence of my presence now in your experience is only the consequence of sin. And I'm giving you a chance to get right with me because I'm coming back to set up my kingdom. And that's a fact. That's the story. But how many feel that story? All too few. And I'm going to tell you why. Because they do not believe the creation account. Because there are many antichrists that are categorically denying the categorical declaration. They're standing toe-to-toe with God, and He is allowing it to test your life. They're standing toe-to-toe with God. God says, in the beginning, I created. God says, the earth is mine and every square inch of it. And the Antichrist waltz in with their minuscule statures, stand toe-to-toe in the holy place, in a space that they could never understand in a bazillion years, and they say, hath God said. But as I was stating, there's some leprosy in what they're telling you. There's a sickness in their minds. You know, the advancement, incidentally, of the intelligent design argument on the broad social scene, which I'm not exactly championing, I'm just making a point, that the advancement of the intelligent design arguments is a direct consequence of the weakness of the original Darwinian theory. 
They have to give some space because they've been exposed through science, real science, from irreducible complexity to a range of other things, mathematics among them. And what I'm trying to say is when they get exposed or when somebody begins to see there's a little bit of leprosy in your theory or your truth, quote unquote. In other words, Darwin, no, the cell is not just jelly, for example. The cell is its own universe, as it were, with incredible machines and so on. What I'm trying to say, my dear brothers and sisters, is what the scholars and the academics will often do is they'll begin to just decorate their idolatrous tree of knowledge with a little bit of tinsel here and there. And if they do, oh boy, people are ready to jump up and play and dance around. So for example, this from a standard work on the Bible that is accepted as a specimen of sound conservative or quasi-conservative religious scholarship, Christian scholarship, the Anchor Yale Bible Dictionary. Anyone who is a serious student of God's Word knows that that particular dictionary has a general claim of elevated intellectual prowess. This is what it has to say about Genesis 1 through 11. The stories are properly termed myths. Oh, your heart's like, but this is the Anchor Yale Bible Dictionary. I don't want it to be a myth. So they're there. They sense you're looking at Uzziah. You're saying, Uzziah, is that you? Do you really belong here? You understand what I'm trying to say? Biblical scholar, excuse me. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in the Bible? You're, you're sort of, you know, a little shaky. Is there a little leprosy creeping up on your arm and between your ears? They go, oh, oh, I'm going to have a little bit of tinsel here. So I'll continue the quotation. The stories are properly termed myths. That is sacred narratives that relate how the world and man came into their present form. You say, oh, oh, praise God. It's a sacred narrative. Oh, that's good. I, when you said myth, I thought you meant myth like myth, like it's not really true. He's like, oh, no, no, there's truth in it. I don't want to digress into this, but Jordan Peterson does this all day long. I'm not against Jordan Peterson as a person, but I'm saying he spreads this all over the place. He interweaves in a very clever way all of these Near Eastern ancient myths with the biblical story and tells a proposed distillation of maps of meaning that many find very convincing and persuasive. And what happens at the end of the day? You wind up being able to have a warm, fuzzy God who's at least in the conversation and is relatively rational, but you control the narrative. Ultimately, you control the narrative. It's for you to determine, okay, so this is a sacred narrative, so God kind of cleaned it up a little bit. Thank you, God, for cleaning up the ancient Near Eastern myths for us a little bit. And I know that Job talks about Leviathan, you might say, and I read my Bible. What are you going to do with that, Brother William? Well, that'll take another study, won't it? But what I would say to you is you're entering into the deep space of origins and how this all came about. And you would do far better to know that first you have to enter in through the blood of Jesus. If you don't first cleanse your minds and purify your hearts and bow before 
Almighty God. You say, well, how am I going to do that before he proves himself to me? Who said that that's the way the universe works? Does the sun have to prove itself to you before it sits in the sky and through gravitational pull brings the planets around incidentally in an elliptical, somewhat distorted orbit? You'll have to listen to last week's teaching and do some thinking if you want to understand what I'm referring to there, at least suggestively. What I'm trying to say is God, because he is God, is not under the obligation to prove his existence to you, a mere human being, to whom it would not be possible to prove his existence into your sovereign space, because you don't have any sovereign space. Well, perhaps for this afternoon, we'll bring things to a pause, if not a close, by reminding you that the very word of God, that this sampling from scholars, religious professors, that they are claiming that this word of God is a network of myths, however cleaned up, otherwise purified, they may claim, this very word of God condemns the propagation of myths. In other words, my dear brothers and sisters, the cultures within which the Bible was written, the holy men of God, who were the human instruments that were used of the Lord to produce these texts, contrary to the arrogant disposition and orientation of the academics, they actually knew what a myth was, and they condemned myths. I'll give you the language of Paul. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 4, we read, Neither give heed, in the King James it is translated fables, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying. The Greek for fables is muthos. Don't give heed to myths. That presumes that, at least in Paul's day, Contrary, again, to the evolutionary anthropological theory of man that argues the further back you go in time, the more ignorant was every single human being. And you, of course, are the epitome of wisdom juxtaposed or over against them. But the Bible doesn't present that view at all. It presents that Adam was created and spoke directly with God and had intelligence sufficient to name all of the animals according to their divinely designed place in the universe. That's quite an undertaking. That's zoology at its best. And we could look through the Bible and see other expressions of the intelligence of men. We could ask modern man just to make a point. If it is the case that the further back you go, humanity is increasingly ignorant, then please explain to me how they built the pyramids. You go build a pyramid without a crane. I mean that you have a cell phone and can immediately text somebody through social media is not proof that you are wiser than previous generations. Maybe I should text that to you if that's the only language you understand. But I'll give it to you in little short sound bites so that you can process it. No, brothers and sisters, I'm seeking to teach your hearts, and it might be something you want to hear over and over again, as a matter of fact. And I'm saying to you, Moses knew the difference between a myth and a revelation that he needed from Almighty God. 
Why did he say at the burning bush? When I go and speak to the Jews in Goshen, they're going to ask me, who is this God? Why didn't he just make up anything? Just, he's Baal, he's Marduk, he's Dagon, he's whatever. He needed a revelation. Of course, the academics, and maybe even people in churches, or someone who's, you know, at least made it through fourth grade or fifth grade, they're so certain that even what I'm presenting presently is a sad representation of a very gullible individual. In other words, you're saying, well, the burning bush itself, you would say, well, that never happened. And the fact that that's even plausible, when I tell that little piece to my story, you know, that it's even plausible that people would feel that way. I'm saying, you know why that is? It's because for many generations now, the Bible has been assailed by a science falsely so-called. And it has undermined the delivering power of the text to our hearts. We are not to give heed to fables, to myths. That's not what Christianity is all about. There have always been distortions, Gnostic versions of otherwise true accounts of reality. It happened in the garden. And Adam and Eve were expected of God to discern between a myth and what God had said. And they couldn't prove it one way or the other. When Lucifer said to them, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not surely die. Adam and Eve decided, basically, well, we'll figure this out on our own. Because it's possible that you're telling us the truth, Lucifer. And I know God has told us that we would die, but we have to be empirical about this. We have to be responsible for our own positions and think this through. I suppose we need to have a scientific experiment here and have a little taste test and see if death ensues. Because all we have are competing theories of reality, and it would be irresponsible of us to just decide for God over this one who's just walked in and is speaking to. Are you hearing with me the way that God presents reality? I hope you don't feel that all of this is lost in the mist of the myths, so that even this you're not feeling. I fully recognize how Likely it is for many hearts that none of this is really serious for you because it isn't according to your version of the scientific method. But we will continue with our study, if you don't mind, in additional teachings within which we will continue to present these ideas and interact with them and not give an entire apologetic against the alternative positions, but nonetheless continue to interact with them Because we are here on God's behalf to battle for the hearts and minds of men. What I'm saying is when you take Adam and Eve to decide between what was a myth and what was true, at bottom, what they should have done is simply taken God's word for it. They could have been greatly aided by the fact that they were not in doubt presently in their hearts that he created all of this. They could have looked and seen what God did and said to Lucifer, what's the last thing you created? 
Okay, do it right now. Create anything, Lucifer, right in front of me. I'm not suggesting that would have been a great method either, but it would have been a whole lot better than what they actually did. I mean, if you're going to say we're going to determine this on the basis of science, you could at least have the decency for your own integrity to require that it be real science, as opposed to what the Bible accurately says is science falsely so-called. I'm going to give you a quotation from the book of Jubilees. Don't bother looking in the table of contents in your Bibles for the book of Jubilees. It's not there. Because the Bible is not a collection of myths. But there was literature always alongside of the sacred text that God gave over time that then by the sovereign direction of His Spirit, He collected into what we call a canon, a rule by which knowledge is governed and gained. What I'm pointing out to you, and we're heading toward the conclusion of this study, what I'm pointing out to you is that the Jews could discern between myths and revelation. So the book of Jubilees is a 2nd century B.C. apocryphal work, and it has, among other things, this account of the life of Abraham. We pick up the life of Abraham according to the book of Jubilees in chapter 11, beginning with verse 18. When Abraham is in Ur of Chaldee, and he's 14 years old, and he, along with the other young lads of Ur, are to attend to their duties in the fields, sowing grain, as no doubt they did, as a matter of fact. The book of Jubilees tells us, and the seed time arrived for sowing in the land. And they all went out together so that they might guard their seed from before the crows. You know, the birds would like to come and eat up the seed. You know that from Matthew 13. So, so far, so good. Sounds pretty true to me. And Abram, and that's accurate, his name hadn't been changed yet, so Abram went out with those who went out, the other lads. And the young man was 14 years old, and a cloud of crows came so that they might eat the seed. And Abram used to run up to them before they settled upon the earth. And he would call out to them before they settled upon the earth to eat seed, and he said... Don't come down. Return to the place whence you came. And they turned back. And he caused the cloud of crows to turn back 70 times in that day. And none of the crows settled on any of the fields where Abram was, not one. And all who were with him and all of the fields saw him as he was calling out. And all of the crows turned away and his reputation was great in the land of Chaldea. You say, well, could that be true? It could be true, but it's not in the Bible. And it has the sound and the ring of a myth to it, like many of the apocryphal books do. You've heard the stories. Jesus makes a little wooden bird and then throws it up in the air and it comes alive like, you know, a Pinocchio story and off it goes and whatever. You, want, you understand what I'm saying? Could Jesus make a wooden bird and give life to it. He said he could give life to stone. So yes, how do you know it's not true? Because it's not in the Bible. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. The earth is the Lord's. 
That's what we're living on, God's earth.